There is a big difference between methane that is produced by animals and methane that's produced industrially. And I believe that as the science is becoming more and more widespread in terms of its understanding, we'll see the consumer understand this differently. Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week, I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. My guest this week is Melissa Clark Reynolds, an experienced entrepreneur, professional director and unabashed optimist. She was awarded the Order of New Zealand Merit for Services to Technology in 2015, and she sits on the boards of Radio New Zealand, Jazzmax Architects, Beef and Lamb New Zealand, and Kiwi Insurance Limited. An eternal student, she's gained qualifications from MIT, Cambridge University, Stanford University, and the Institute for the Future. And in 2007, she was the first New Zealander to train with Al Gore as a climate project presenter. She continues to champion climate and sustainability issues. Melissa Clark Reynolds, welcome to this climate business. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Your Twitter handle, Honey Bee Geek, it suggests, I don't know, possibly an interest in bees. Um, What's this I am interest? I'm a beekeeper and, um, and I, I live in like, urban Wellington and I have hives here and I have a keen interest in bees. But. Um, also, Melissa means honeybee in modern Greek and was an ancient, I guess like goddess, who um, Zeus transformed into a bee. So so the, my name means honeybee as well. So it's kind of a little play on that. Um, and you're a geek. And I'm a geek. And I'm a geek. Um, yeah, they're big debates about whether you're a nerd or a geek, and I'm probably both. <laughs> I'm interested in your position uh, as a board member of Beef and Lamb. I thought we were supposed to not be eating red meat to do our bit for the planet. Well, I think it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Um, Beef and Lamb were really gutsy, and I actually think I was pretty gutsy too. I'm the first independent director of Beef and Lamb, so I'm the first ever non-farmer on that board. Um, And it's been an interesting road. You know, I've been there almost three years, and we've been through some really interesting times. You know, we're... Um, we've got obviously quite a strong position on climate and we put out our own manifesto on how we were going to become climate neutral before there was a a climate commission or an interim climate commission and long before there was any legislation. We really are leaders in the He Eke Wakanoa, which is the coalition of the primary sector. Yeah, and did you push them to do that or was there already motivation within the board? There was already momentum. And I just got to be part of it. So this issue of whether or not we should eat red meat, I think is an interesting one. So I think that people should make their own ethical choices. So I'm going to put that to one side, you know, in terms of whether they um, think that it's okay to eat animals. So let's just park that one if we really want to focus on climate today. And, um, and I think the more that I read and the more that I understand around um, climate is that Meat is not meat is not meat. So the way that um, meat might be produced in one country is not the same as it might be somewhere else. 
And then the same, not all meats are the same. So, you know, lamb produced outdoors in New Zealand is not intensive, so it's extensive agriculture. The emissions from that are pretty low, and as well the impact of runoff from the sheep industry is pretty minor. So I guess that I, I look at that, um, you know, we should all be giving up meat for the planet, and I, I don't know that that's true. I mean, that's going to be a hard message to sell internationally, isn't it? Because the, the giving up meat is such a simplistic and simple ease, uh, message to get across. How is New Zealand going to position itself then as low-impact, low-emissions meat producer? I think there's a couple of things. So I think that we, we have genuinely um, in the meat industry, and so I want to sort of separate out perhaps all livestock, but let's just talk about sheep and beef for a minute. We have reduced stock massively over the last 10 years, and I think the difficult one for farmers is that the best way to reduce emissions is actually to reduce stock. And so we have been consistently reducing emissions in the New Zealand meat industry. Um, two things is that we're making feed more efficient um, and a lot of that is to do with the mix of feed and with the genetics of the animals. And so we're both producing um, more meat from an animal but what we're doing is that as we've become cleaner and greener um, and we are really transparent about our production systems, we are getting higher prices in the marketplace for our grass-fed ethical meat. And so the sell business is interesting. You've got to sell it at two ends. You have to sell it to the farmer as well as selling it to the consumer. So for the farmer end, we're looking to produce a very high quality product that is boutique. It's not trying to do mass market food. Um, and mass market food, I think, is very difficult to do um, and be clean or green or ethical about it. So then your other side of your question is about the consumer. And I think there's a few things. So consumers increasingly want to know where their food came from, particularly if they have any choice. So we're talking here about consumers already have food security. Now, they want to know that it's the, the, the animal itself had the best possible life before it died, as well as they're interested in the farmers, the farm workers, the state of the land. And more and more, we're able to tell that story, not because we're greenwashing it, but we actually have a good story to tell. Now, I know this is starting to be a bit of a monologue, but the last piece of this puzzle is actually the climate science. And this has changed quite a lot in the 20-odd years that I've been reading climate material, which is that there is a big difference between methane that is produced by animals and methane that's produced industrially. And I believe that as the science is becoming more and more widespread in terms of its understanding, we'll see the consumer understand this differently. Do you mean that the methane emissions of an animal are chemically or sort of molecularly different from methane from industry, or is it a question of scale? What, what do you mean different? It's kind of a combination. What's really interesting is that the science is showing that um, it's a variety of things. So methane produced close to the ground by an animal um, breaks back down to carbon dioxide in about 10 years. And so there's something around the whole farming process where that CO2 eventually breaks down and is taken up by the grass that goes back to feeding those animals. So I and mean, it sounds uh, sort of delicious, but 
wishful thinking, and it reinforces this impression that the ag sector, and I, you know, I know you're not here to defend the ag sector, but you know, you happen yeah. to be at the end of the line. Um, but the impression is that the ag sector has been dragging the chain on addressing climate issues and continues to resist, for instance, being part of the ETS. Well, I think that that's, again, I would say, I think you can't look at the ag sector as a sector on this one. And so, again, I, I only want to speak for, like, sheep and beef farming in New Zealand, and that's not global. But here we've not been dragging the chain. And um, the reason that we don't want to, well, actually, we're not resisting being in the ETS. I think that that's a falsehood. We have, in fact, said that we want to be in the ETS what we want to do is we want to make sure that we have adequate processes for measuring at farm. So what the government had proposed was that they wanted the ETS to apply on killed animals only. So what they were looking for was a way to collect a, a tax based on, like by the processor at kill. And, and that's kind of crazy because the moment the animal's killed, it doesn't really produce any more methane. So what we wanted is, and we've asked to be in the ETS, we've just got a transition period. And in this transition period, what we want to be able to do and what we're well working on, we're well down the track on, is being able to say it should be paid at the farm level. So an individual farmer who reduces their stock should get a different kind of um, environmental tax than a farmer who is highly intensified. A farmer who puts um, a bunch of their farm into native forest should be treated differently from one who doesn't. 30% of New Zealand's native forest is on sheep and beef farms and it's growing. And so there's also quite a lot of debate around whether we can even count native forest for carbon sequestration. So I'm not trying to obfuscate here. What I'm saying here is actually we asked to be in the ETS. We're, we're working through a transition in how to be under the ETS, which we think will get a much better outcome and send the better signals to farmers than having it be through a meat processor, which was the government proposition. It all could be a bit moot if the world continues to move to this plant-based diet, right, and and red meat continues to decline, which, which it is. Well, personally, I think we eat too much meat. I'm going to make that super clear. We know that World Health Organization suggests that if you eat meat, three times a week up to 100 grams is the right amount to be eating. And Americans eat something like 10 times that, and I think New Zealanders eat somewhere around the three to five times that. That's not sustainable for humanity, as well as these other issues. So I guess I'm picking that people will eat less meat. Um, So the meat eaters will eat less meat, as well as I think we will continue to see a growth in people who reject meat eating altogether. And, and I'm good with that. That's also why I think New Zealand needs to not be a mass market producer of any food. New Zealand needs to be thinking about four meat eaters. And I get for people who don't eat meat, this is all quite challenging. But for meat eaters, we want them to think of meat as a treat, not as something that needs to be on your plate for mm. every meal. I won't dwell on meat forever, but I'm curious about the shift that farming seems to be making towards forestry. Uh, Could you imagine a time when 
forestry um, makes uh, a significant comeback and, and even, I don't know, carbon farming. You know, is that a possibility? Um, I'd kind of like to separate those two ideas. So I think that um, farms in New Zealand that are like weathering this storm and that are successful now tend to have um, a variety of products that they produce on the farm. And I think that the farm in New Zealand in 10 years' time is going to have multiple sources of income. So some of that will be, say, from meat, but it might also be from foraged nuts or fruits or something or um, I had been seeing a future in tourism and I still think that we'll see on-farm tourism maybe domestic but I think we'll see that and I think carbon farming has a place in that total farm system and so we've got to think about farming systems and beekeeping right so you know being able to plant the right forage crops for bees um, which might include like willow for example is a fantastic crop for a bee uh, at the same time, it's really good for stabilising our waterways, you know, or our, our streams. So thinking about integrated farm systems, and, and we're already going down that path. Um, we're, we're producing integrated farm plans, and um, and we think that every farm should have an integrated farm plan or a, a farm environment plan. There's lots of words for these, but within the next few years. Um, so our goal is to get to 80% of New Zealand sheep and beef farms having one of those plans quite quickly. So I think there's a huge role for carbon farming alongside sheep and beef farming. I want to talk about forestry separately. Um, I think it would be a terrible outcome for New Zealand if we replaced farms with monocropped pine. And um, pine at the moment is one of the best crops for New Zealand to grow for carbon farming. We have huge issues already with wilding pines. It's one of the most invasive pests in New Zealand. Um, they are very hard to control. The, um, the life, like the uh, wildlife that can live in a pine forest is extremely limited. And so part of why I think we need some of this delay in farming coming into the ETS is so we can also work out um, what the right measurements are for carbon sequestration of native forest. Now that native forest may never be felled for timber and should be part of a national biodiversity plan. And again, beef and lamb, you know, we have very strong biodiversity plans. We want to see native biodiversity across our landscape. That's not well supported by the current government's um, approach to forestry. And it's probably one of the biggest areas where we have some friction. So so I'm, I'm probably more concerned about a transition to forestry under the way we're doing it now than I am excited. So as I'm well as that, forestry creates a lot less jobs than farming. And I think it could have some major impacts on the rural economy. So much of the future scenario uh, of sinking carbon relies on the growth of forests. What you're suggesting is actually quite challenging to that planning, that scenario. It is. It is. Um, and, yeah, and so I have, I have deep concerns about it at the same time as wanting us to think about how we do sinks. Look, coming back to that, you know, that very complicated kind of climate science I was talking around about methane, um, you know, we truly believe that you shouldn't be able to offset methane. You should be able to offset CO2 production, but methane takes 10 years to, 
to degrade to CO2. And so the offsetting of methane shouldn't, in my opinion, should not be allowed. So that means people like Air New Zealand buying credits for their methane or, um, or nitrous oxide. I have deep concerns about that. So, yes, our, our national plan seems to be planting forests, but reduction at source, to me, should be our plan A. And then sequestration should be our plan B. Your journey into this, I think, started in 2007 when you went to train with Al Gore on the climate project. What motivated you to make that move? And I think you were the first New Zealander to do it. I was. There were two of us. Um, And it kind of started earlier, but it came together perfectly then so so I have a, a master's um, that specializes in environmental health and environmental epidemiology so um, I studied uh, hazardous waste management I um, did some major projects in the US on things like uh, the long-term health effects of Chernobyl I worked here in New Zealand for the electricity sector on environmental health and environmental related disease and I guess part of what I'm particularly interested in is um, pandemics that might occur because of changes to the climate. Seems incredibly appropriate. Well, I think we need to come back to that. We'll come back to that. But so that was really what I was interested in. Um, I kind of ended up in occupational safety and health and environmental work as a result of that. And I had about three lectures during my master's on climate science. Now, you've got to kind of picture this, right? I'm now in my 50s, but I was in my 20s. And everything they were talking about seemed a long way off. And when you're in your 20s, even turning 50 seems like deeply improbable. (laughs) Do you know? And so I just sort of thought it was vaguely interesting. Um, But it always stuck in my mind. And it stuck in my mind, particularly, we we had a lecture from a scientist who had been tracking um, CO2 um, in Hawaii for 50 years already. And what struck me was that the science was kind of 50 years old by the time I was studying it 30 years ago. and But it had never really got traction. And so I thought it was vaguely interesting. And then in 1990, I spent a year working for the Ministry for the Environment here in New Zealand. And I worked on the early hazardous substances, new organisms legislation. I worked on the Resource Management Act. And I worked um, in the Māori Secretariat on these issues. And again, there was a whole climate team that shared the floor with us. And I thought that they were sort of, again, kind of vaguely interesting, but not very relevant. And um, so it had kind of just been ticking away in the back of my mind. And in 2005, I took my then five-year-old to Hawaii and my brother lived there. And we're all quite big swimmers in my family, and I'm a kayaker, and I I long-distance swam, competed for years, and everyone in my family is a swimmer or a diver or a kayaker or something underwater. And so I taught my five-year-old to snorkel, and we were snorkeling um, just on a public beach one day, and some turtles came close to us. And she was entranced, and we spent almost 40 minutes in the water just keeping a little bit behind them and watching them as they circled us and and were all around us. And I finally had to drag her back up on the beach because she was exhausted. Like, I literally actually carried her out of the water and she couldn't (laughs) walk. And we sat on the beach and she started sobbing. 
and um, I might cry anyway. She said to me, Mummy, um, will I be able to snorkel with my children and turtles? And it was just a deep emotional turning point for me as I thought about the stuff that I had actually known by then for over 20 years um, but hadn't thought was particularly relevant. Mm. And it, it just, I think sometimes we need an emotional hook or an emotional aha movement. And for me it was that little five-year-old snorkeling warm body beside me in the ocean and I just felt awful that that might not be there for my grandchildren. Um, and so I had a, a I had the CEO of a software company in Christchurch and that role came to an end um, in 2007 and I had some money and I had some time and I had watched the Inconvenient Truth movie in what was then the Cloisters Theatre and um in Christchurch and there were four of us in the theatre <laughs> and um, and I was like oh my god you know why aren't there more people here and then when the credits rolled at the end of the film I wanted to shout at Al Gore because the credits rolled and it was all about like what you can do was like change your light bulb and start composting and it was like, I'm bloody well doing everything on your list already. Right. You know, get a grip. We're not going to do this as individual consumers buying better light bulbs. We actually need to organise. And we need to organise and we need a combination of individual behaviour change and legislation. And I guess that's what then took me, because I was angry, um, it took me to the training and... I'm really grateful that I did that because what it gave me back was a real sense of agency, mm-hmm. that there was something I could do. And I, I provided that slideshow, so I trained to do the slideshow, and I provided that, um, I don't even know how many times, like over 50 times around New Zealand, and a lot of it with farmers. And farmers, and I think that's what took me to agriculture, groups of farmers around the country would invite me to come and speak to their group so I, I was in you know RSA halls and cosy clubs and the Geraldine movie theatre um, and I, it would pack out with a hundred farmers coming to ask questions and I just loved that mm. that was back in like those 2007-2010 so my activism around this comes and goes as my energy comes and goes <laughs> but your like energy is agency. is legendary and you know we <laughs> Many of us have admired your energy over the years, starting you know, a huge insurance company. We won't get into that, not for this podcast anyway. But I'm, I'm curious about your energy uh, because you haven't had the easiest of times growing up. Have you had mentors or you know, where does that optimism and energy come from? I think that's great. Um, so a couple of things. Yeah, I had a I had a pretty tough childhood, and the benefit of that now is that when when shit happens, I look back and I kind of go, the worst things that will ever happen in my life have already happened to me. And that reminder to myself means that I get through when things get a bit bleak. Mm. Do you know nothing will ever be as bad as some of what I endured as a child. And in remembering that, I can only have optimism. 
Um, and your yeah. your mother was an inspiration to you, or continues to be. Yeah, she was, but she was a difficult person as well. She died a few years ago, and like she was a, an activist. Um, she, you know, she instigated me learning Tarao at five, and um, and that has given me just the most wonderful gift of my life. Um, she was an environmental activist. She was one of the founders of Amnesty International in New Zealand. Um, so admired her deeply. But at the same time, um, she had a borderline personality disorder and struggled mental health-wise, um, was um, deeply violent, um, difficult. I never lived again at home again after the age of 13. Mm. Um, and um, yeah, but one of the probably the greatest gift of my life in a funny way was um, I'm the oldest woman in my family and in and, and our family we have a tradition of the women washing um, a body down and after someone has died um, our women or the women take the time to prepare the body and I, I've done it for my grandmothers and um, and to do that for my mother was an incredibly healing thing. And she did an extraordinary thing, which is that she gave her body to Auckland Med School. And it was quite a, a hard thing to organise because um, she hadn't actually signed any of the paperwork. <laughs> she had asked me to, and I had signed it. Um, and so I managed to organise getting her from Whangarei to Auckland Medical School and to hand her over to them. So she, she was a really extraordinary woman in lots of ways, but equally incredibly difficult. And the activism of hers, one of the things I learned watching her is that we need some of the activists who just shout from the sidelines and are criticising and angry. And that was the kind of activist she was. But we also need the people who organise, build collaboration, um, find our tribe, encourage others, are generous, get up underneath the green shoots of change, don't complain that it's not good enough or fast enough, but really support the people who are making it happen. Mm-hmm. And I want to be that kind of activist. I think those activists are more effective. Um, so so I learned a lot from her and admire her and I'm grateful for her. Um, but God, I, I when she died, I just wished she'd had a better life. You know? Her life was just that, the mental illness... Um, the isolation, the anger, it was a tough road. We're in for a tough road right now, aren't we, with COVID? I think we are. I just want to come back to one other thing, though, that you asked and I didn't answer, which is around mentors. Like, I always have mentors, and um, I have had all of my life, really. So I was lucky um, in school to have... um, well, a couple of things. Um, in high school, I had one teacher who really, or two actually, Mr. Farnsworth, who was my maths teacher, <laughs> who who really championed me. Um, we all have a Mr. Farnsworth somewhere in our somewhere in and our past, don't we? One, right? You know, and I had a a deputy principal who was the same. Who you know, I went to her funeral recently, and um, and I she just. I just admired her deeply. I had a primary school teacher who I stayed in touch with for 30 years until she died. So some of these people. Um, and then um, 
I've had I had a professor at MIT who coached me for many years. Right now, I have a guy called John Selby who is an ex audit partner from one of the big five. You know, I, I um, I've had yeah I've had a real variety over the years, and I think that anyone without a mentor, um, you're kind of really missing out. So so I'm a big fan of having mentors. Mm. Mm, that's great advice. Uh, I want to just come back to COVID and yeah. your reflections on our, I suppose, the, the hope of some sort of green recovery. You know, hashtag green recovery is doing the rounds at the moment. What hope do you have of restructuring a, a different kind of economy and hopefully a low emissions economy based on this reset that we are currently going through? Look, I think it's really interesting. Uh, so I don't think this was a black swan event. Um, I have some, so I work as well as I'm working as a professional director. I have a, a strategy and foresight company, um, Future Centre, that I run. And I work predominantly with companies in the primary sector, um, but that can be anywhere from freight and logistics in that sector through to you know meat inspectors through to farms. Um, and I look back at this and I go, well, we've, we, we have a, a pandemic about every three, three and a half years. And as well as that, we've had some major events in New Zealand like earthquakes, like terrorist attacks, um, like M. Bovis. Um, in my own career, I've had, um, you know, GFCs and tech bubbles and I had the Asian banking collapse in 97 so so I feel like these major disruptions happen regularly and at least every three years mm. what if we thought about this one instead of thinking about this one as the one we thought about this one as the practice for the next one because we know there is going to be a next one and whether it's a disease that is caused because of the changing climate or whether it's um, floods and famine and other environmental related impacts, I can tell you with certainty that there will be one, certainly within the next five and I'm picking one within the next three and a half years. Mm, the only constant is change. At, at the scale though, I mean this is... The comparisons are made with the Spanish flu or the Second World War. That, that's the scale of uh, this epi- uh, pandemic. Are, are you suggesting that we I'm should be expecting that, that every three I, years? Maybe not this scale, but I think there will be another event like this and it will be less than 100 years. So, But coming back to me, the companies who have not seen this as a black swan event, the companies who have taken those various, like, big disruption events that we've had in the last decade and have used them as practice runs for something else are doing really well. So I'll give you the example. I'm on the board of Radio New Zealand. And when we got locked out of our building um, with the Wellington earthquakes, we put in place a massive resilience plan into that organisation that said, what if we couldn't get into Wellington? What if we could never get back into Wellington again? And so we did fail safe and we started moving a lot of talent to Auckland. We started putting in studios in Auckland. You've probably seen, you know, we did the Checkpoint, um, which is on in a very cheap studio. 
so that we could run video. We could. We really thought through lots of layers of what if we couldn't do this. And so the fact that Susie Ferguson is able to do morning report from home is because we took that earthquake seriously and we went, this isn't going to be the only one of these we get. So I guess what I'm trying to say in a long way around is that there are companies that are going to be very resilient out of this event and they're the ones who planned for something, not knowing what it would be. Hmm. One of the big things that those companies did is that they thought a lot about their digital delivery. And so for me in the area that I work in, thinking deeply about what can we now digitise? Like Assure Quality is a, a... you know, big organisation with 1,700 people who, amongst other things, do meat inspections and do farm audits. And their lead of innovation and I challenged each other just six months ago to say, what if we could never see a client face-to-face again? How would we organise this? And so we're now deep in thinking about how to digitise more and more of the work that we do. So for me, the bit that I understand about the green revolution is that the digitization of a lot of tasks that we currently travel to and that we currently expect people to move around for truly don't need to be done. And I think this is a moment where the Internet of Things, um, remote sensing, a bunch of other activities like that um, will take a leap. You know, there was a little meme floating around for a while, like, did your company digital because of one the board two the CTO or three COVID-19 <laughs> and and I think COVID-19 is going to do that now I don't think New Zealand is going to have such a great green revolution if our big plan is to increase roading as our way out so you know again I'm not speaking on behalf of any of the boards I sit on this is just my personal opinion that this would be a great time to not be thinking about roading infrastructure, but be thinking about social infrastructure. I don't think we can separate the climate from our um, inequities in our society. So, you know, this to me would be the perfect time to insulate um, and um, make every piece of state housing like top of the line, LEED certified. You know, what if we insisted that um, government started building living buildings? Um, that we used our government procurement cash to leap forward into becoming one of the greenest economies that also dealt with inequity at the same time. What if the Ministry for Housing and Urban Development specified that we're not trying to build housing that people can afford to buy, we're trying to build housing that people can afford to run? So you, that we um, have very different questions in place. And I'm not yet sure that those kinds of questions are making it to the table. Mm. I spoke uh, a couple of weeks ago to Paul Winton, who is an Mm -hmm. analyst who thinks that transport is a really low-hanging fruit for New Zealand in terms of impact, emissions impact. In terms of your priorities, let's imagine you had the the wand, uh, you were Grant Robertson, and you could determine the spend. What, What are the priority areas for you in this kind of rebuild, restructure? I'm going to put housing right near the top. And I know they're already working on housing, but I think um, requiring Kaing Order and HUD to produce the greenest public housing standards in the world, I think that's, to me, that's at the top of my list. 
Um, I think that the transport one is essential because, uh, amongst other things, my, my role in the ag sector is that we're an exporting nation. And so putting trucking hubs into places is not, to me, the, the smartest idea. Um, really making rail super efficient and electrified, um, to me, is, is deeply important. Um, and I think that, coming back to housing, I'm talking also about how we deal with New Zealand's poor housing stock that already exists. Mm. If you go to Europe, they took the opportunity of the Second World War um, to implement very high housing standards for everything that got rebuilt. And so, you know, I was um, at a, an event in Denmark two years ago. It was January. It was minus 40 outside. Um, I was in a building, like a house that we were all staying in that had no heating and was 19 degrees inside. Mm. And um, those kinds of building standards... They exist, and we should be really thinking about that sort of thing in New Zealand. You know, I see that we're thinking about, um, you know, infrastructure and um, building, but I don't see us investing in this area at all. So, so I'm not against transport. I think transport needs to be done, but I think that's also just really obvious. I think we need to be also looking at the things that raise our living standards at the same time. So part of why I've been worried about COVID-19 as the flu season hits is that New Zealanders live in some terrible housing stock. Um, it is expensive for us to heat our homes. Yes. Um, you know, I live in a really wealthy suburb and when we looked at what it would cost us to double glaze um, and to fully insulate this old villa that I live in, it's going to be cheaper to knock it down. <laughs> And, you know, we have to be thinking quite deeply about that. What is it with this affection with villas? I, I, oh. uh, we must yeah. get over it. Well, cast your mind back to Hawaii yeah. with your daughter swimming with those turtles. What's your answer to her question? Will she be swimming with her daughter and seeing turtles over coral reefs? Well... We went last year, um, so she's now 19. Um, she lives in Melbourne, she's doing a degree, you know, master's degree now at the University of Melbourne. And we had a family holiday up in northern Queensland um, last year. And um, that was amazing. Like, what was amazing about it was that without choosing to, every tourist thing we did the operators hammered into us how affected they already were by climate change and how urgent it was for us to do something. So my daughter and I ziplined in the um, forest canopy. Um, we went for some incredible walks. We did tours with uh, indigenous elders through forests and they talked to us in um, and it didn't matter whether it was the Australian Forest Service doing the tour or Indigenous elders or, you know, some tattooed, punky-type hippies, you know, everyone talked to us about climate change. Um, when we went out and um, dived on the reef, 
the reef operator showed us bleaching, talked to us about how urgent it was, told us how, why they had become vegetarians, why they wouldn't serve any animal products on their tours anymore. You know, like it was really um, deeply impressive and mm. moving. And it actually left me with a sense of hope. Um, so again, that activism gives me hope. Mm. Um, I think that if I hadn't done anything for these last 15 years, um, I would feel despairing. But I see that the coalition of people who want to do something is becoming broader and broader. Mm. That um, tour operators, farmers, you know, people people I just run into on the street, you know, people are talking about it in a way they've never done before. The fact that the government... You know, I think we had two faux attempts at an ETS. I thought the original Labour one was terrible, cynical. I thought the second one was dreadful. And I think now we've got something that's much more likely to succeed. Um, I think that the forces against change are always strong. But I do believe that the forces for hope and the forces for change are growing. So again, when our tourism industry comes back, I think we need to be taking ecotourism much more seriously than we do in New Zealand. Um, you know, the Department of Conservation for Conservation needs to be truly about sustainability, not just about um, tourism and um, you know and, pre and predators. We need to really like that's another area I'd love to see the government put a whole lot more money into is turbocharging our conservation efforts. Mm. Yeah. Melissa Clark Reynolds, it's been a delight. Thanks for joining us on this climate business. Thanks so much. I look forward to a conversation where you get a word in. <laughs> Does it ever happen? <laughs> well, you have a wonderful day and I'm so glad you're doing this series. Uh, good. Thanks, Melissa. I really appreciate Thanks. your time. Bye. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. I hope you enjoyed the programme. There are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website, thisclimatebusiness.com. I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter, vherringer, that's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week, and no hurrah.